This morning's sermon text is 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Lord, I thank you so much for the word before us today. I thank you for 1 Samuel chapters 19 and 20. Oh God, it's such a powerful word for us. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would come now and teach us. And I pray especially for those who are weary, specifically because they're living by faith. Oh Lord, may today be a breath of fresh air. May it be fresh wind in the sails today. May you teach us to persevere to the glory of your name. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, last week we spent some time meditating on the rise of David in the land of Israel. And we saw that the rise of David in that country was actually the rise of faith in that country. And what I mean is that David came to rise to power because this young man defeated the giant Goliath. But the way that he defeated the giant Goliath was by putting all of his faith in the faithfulness of God. He was not putting his faith in himself or in his techniques. Even though he was really great at slinging a stone, he was not trusting in his sling and his stone. He was trusting in the Lord his God. And because David rose to power in that way, because he rose to power by faith, God was pleased to exalt him in the land and God was pleased to draw to him other people of faith. As I said to you last week, beloved, faith has a smell to it. Faith has an aroma to it. When a person like David lives truly by faith in the faithfulness of God, when this in the depth of their hearts is the motive of their hearts, not perfectly pure, but generally speaking, it's the motive of their hearts. Other people of faith can smell it. They can sense it. And they're attracted to it. They come to be attached to it. They're inspired to love the Lord more and to trust the Lord more. And their soul is knit to this other person of faith. At the same time, those who are not walking by faith can also sense it. They can also smell it. They can also feel it. And they're repelled by it. 
They're disgusted by it. They heap disdain on the person of faith, and sometimes they even try to kill the person of faith. This is why, at one and the same time, the king's son, Jonathan, was so attached to David, and the king himself was so repelled by David. You'll remember that Jonathan was so attracted to David's faith that he took the royal robe from off of himself and put it on David. He gave David his armor. He gave David his sword. He gave David his belt. Beloved, he was handing over to David the throne of Israel. He was handing over to David all of his prestige, all of his power. And you know why? It's because he was a man of faith. And a man of faith has no need for position or prestige or for power. The man of faith cares about the glory of God in the land. And it does not matter to the man of faith who is ascending to the throne. It doesn't matter to him. Jonathan could see by faith that his father was falling and that David was rising. And he attached himself to David, not because in the flesh he was trying to get in with the guy who was going up, but because in the spirit, Jonathan wanted to be a part of what God was doing, no matter what consequence that had for him personally. It didn't matter to him if he had to step back from the throne so that God's will could be done through David as he rose to the throne. Beloved, that's what faith looks like. True trust in God frees us from the things of this world. And it just doesn't matter to us who gets the credit, who gets the power, who gets the prestige. Faith joins with faith to exalt God and glorify God in the world. Saul, on the other hand, was nothing like his son. He hated David. And the reason that he hated David was because he was not a man of faith. He was a man of the flesh. And when David was rising, Saul took it as a threat to his power, as a threat to his prestige. And someone who cares mostly about their power, you know what they have to do? They have to remove everybody who's a threat to that power. Isn't that right? And for Saul, it wasn't enough to demean David or to dishonor David. In his heart, he felt that he had to kill David. He saw no other way. After that amazing battle with Goliath, the people came out of their cities and they sang an amazing song of worship that said, Saul has killed his thousands. Well, that's pretty good, actually. But it wasn't enough for Saul because the next line was, David has killed his ten thousands. And for Saul, he saw that David was being put above him and he was so jealous because he wasn't living by faith. If he had faith, he wouldn't have cared who had the bigger numbers. It would not have mattered to him. He would have bowed on the ground with his brother in faith and he would have given thanks to the God who is faithful because it was God who caused David to slay those 10,000s, not David's flesh. But Saul was a man of the flesh and so far from rejoicing with David, he sought to kill him. Last week we saw in one chapter three specific plots against David. First, Saul tried to pin David against the wall. Then he tried to put David in harm's way by making him a commander over an army so that he'd constantly be in battle. And when that didn't work, Saul tried death by marriage. He brought David into the very royal family so that he could put David in even more danger and so that David would possibly be killed and Saul would not be found out. But unfortunately for Saul, all of his plots failed and the man of faith prevailed by faith to the glory of God. But unfortunately for David, these three consecutive failures did not get through to Saul. His heart was not softened. In fact, it was hardened, and he was only just beginning. In the next chapter, one single chapter, 
we learn of four more plots against the life of David. And Saul is deadly serious, and I mean deadly serious. And so today we're gonna look at those plots in chapter 19. We're gonna look a little bit at what transpired then in chapter 20. And along the way, the main thing we're gonna learn today is this. This is the punch of the sermon today. That those who live by faith must persevere in faith. Those who live by faith are going to be under constant attack, sometimes severe attack, and it's simply not gonna stop until the day we see Jesus Christ, beloved. If we're going to live by faith, we have to learn to persevere by faith. We have to learn to press on. We have to learn to keep on keeping on, to keep trusting the Lord no matter what the circumstances. Those who live by faith must persevere in faith. I'm really praying, and I've been praying, that this will be a great encouragement to us as we see what the Lord did. So let's just quickly look at each of the next four plots. The fourth plot is in the first seven verses. Cheryl just read it for us. I just call it Assassinate David. Saul literally puts a squad together and sends them to kill him. After his third plot failed, he sat and he wondered what to do. The man of faith had married into his very family and every single thing that the man of faith was doing, God was prospering. David was prospering in everything he did, not because he was an amazing person, but because God was with him. And this caused Saul to hate him all the more. To this point, Saul had kept every single one of his plots, well, except the one where he threw the spear at David and tried to kill him right in front of people. Other than that, his plots had been kept secret. But for now, for whatever reason, he felt that it was time to come out, if you will, and to tell people what he was up to and actually to get them to join him. So he calls his son into his presence. He calls all of his servants into his presence and he gives this command. He said the command is this, find David and kill him. Jonathan's heart, as you know, was knit to David's heart. And so when Jonathan heard these words, the first thing he did was he hightailed it out of that room. He went and found David as fast as he could. He told him about the command that had just been given, and he told David, he persuaded David to hide himself until such a time as Jonathan could take care of the problem. David listened to his very good friend, and then Jonathan went back to his father, and he confronted his father. And I hope you can see he confronted him by faith. In confronting the king, you are taking your life into your hands, even if you're the son of the king. And here's what Jonathan said in verses four and five. He said, Dad, let not the king sin against his servant David because he has not sinned against you and because his deeds have actually brought good to you. So he's saying, Dad, it's not just that he's done nothing against you, Everything David has done has been a blessing to you. When the waters of faith have risen in the life of David, they've caused you to rise as well. He's not cursed you, and in fact, he's blessed you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, Goliath. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Please pay attention to Jonathan's words, beloved. First of all, who gets the credit there? Isn't it the Lord that's getting the credit? That's what faith does. Faith says it happened through this man, but it was God that did it. Jonathan's eyes are fixed on God because David's eyes were fixed on God. And he's trying to get Saul's eyes fixed on God. And then he says, Father, David didn't just win a victory for his fame. He won a victory for all of Israel. 
He did this for you too. So why in the world, why in the world, Father, would you be against him? You saw it and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Beloved, Jonathan's words were powerful. And I don't know exactly what was happening inside of Saul's heart, but he was so moved by the logic and the, the force of what Jonathan was saying that he said this in verse six. Please note these words. If you're a note taker, especially if you write in your Bible, underline this, highlight it, do something. This is a very important verse because Saul is basically about to condemn himself. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, that's the sacred name of God, as Yahweh lives, he shall not be put to death. Now this made me think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. Let me just read them for you. You don't have to turn there because it's going to go quickly. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Beloved, these words of Saul would soon rise to condemn him. Remember these words. He used the sacred name of God to say he would not kill David, which means, doesn't it, that he would stop pursuing David? He used the sacred name of God to mask his fleshly plots, and God was watching And I promise you, Saul's words will condemn him, even as they have already condemned him. Saul was a very sick man, and he thought of nothing of using God's name to accomplish his fleshly purposes. But for the time, the plot was done. Jonathan went and got David, brought him back into the house, and to my amazement, at least, in verse 7, it says that David just lived in the presence of the king just as before, like nothing had happened. And so plot number four failed, and the man of faith prevailed. Now, plot number five, pin David to the wall again. The time came where war broke out in Israel again. The Philistines were acting up, and so David took his troops out to war. Everywhere David went, he had rousing success. It says that he struck a great blow against the Philistines. This should have been good news for the king, good news for the country, good news for everybody. David comes back into the king's palace and he's playing again his lyre, his harp-like instrument, which was meant to be a blessing to the king, which was meant to soothe the spirit of the king. But the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that that evil, harmful, tormenting spirit from God again came upon Saul and he began to rage inside of his heart and he began to rage against David. Oh, there's just something in the flesh that absolutely hates the man of faith. And this kind of spirit was rising up in Saul and so again he took his spear and he heaved it at David with all of his might trying to pin him against the wall and kill him. But David, by grace, evaded. He had some kind of Jewish ninja moves. And he evaded, and the the spear just stuck in the wall, and you can just see it. Death plot fails, and the man of faith prevails. And this time, he feels that he's got to flee. So for the moment, he flees to his home. But Saul is sick. He's very sick. And so here comes plot number six. Assassinate David again. When Saul finds out that David fled the palace and went to his home, which would have been a little distance away from the palace, Saul sends a hit squad to go and surround his house and to wait until the morning and kill him. Somehow his wife, Michal, the king's daughter, finds out about the plot. Either she saw them outside or somebody told her or something. The Bible doesn't tell us how she knew, but she knew. 
So she tells David about the plot and says, you need to flee and you need to flee right now. And they let him outside of a window and, and he takes off. And then she does something very interesting. She takes a household god, which was not a tribute to Yahweh, the true and living God. It was a tribute to some other foreign god. She puts it in David's bed to disguise the fact that he's gone and to make it look like he's just sleeping in the bed so that the hitmen would look there and think that David is still there. And I I have a question for you. What is that household god doing inside of David's house? Why is there a foreign god inside of his house? I've, I've really racked my brain. If any of you can think of a place, I'm really open to hearing about this. I can't think of a single place in the Bible where it says that David was given to the worship of other gods. So I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening is he married into the house of the king and it turns out that King Saul was not only worshiping Yahweh, but that like his predecessors before him, not kings, but others that were leaders in Israel, he was a very compromised man And probably in his mind to cover all of his bases, he worshiped everything under the sun. Probably his daughter learned to worship false gods from him. And probably that false god was inside of David's house because of the king. And probably David, either out of fear or out of respect or whatever, decided not to remove it from the house. But whatever reason, I just want to point out, there is a foreign god inside the house of the king's daughter. And I think this gives us uh, insight into what's happening to Saul. I've tried to explain to you before, I don't think Saul fell quickly. I think what happened is he slowly but surely stopped listening to the words of God. He stopped walking in the will of God and in the ways of God and he drifted and drifted and drifted and drifted until he completely drifted away from God. And I mention this because it's a great warning for us. The book of Hebrews is all about this. Don't let soul drift overcome your household because it will bring disaster upon your household. Whatever the case may be, the assassins looked in there. They surely thought David was in the bed, but at some point Saul said, go get him. So they went in to get him, and Michal said, no, no, he's sick. You you can't take him now, which did delay the plan a little bit, but the king was so sick that he said, I don't care if David is sick. You just take him out of the bed, bring him to me, and we're going to kill him right here. And that's when they discovered the ruse. They discovered that Michal had deceived them. And she lied and said that David had threatened her with her life if, if, if she didn't let him go. But one way or the other, he wasn't there to kill. And so the plot failed. And the man of faith prevailed. This leads to plot number seven, which is uh, capture and kill. Now he's not at home. Now he's fled to some unknown place and they've got to find him. And Saul wants to get that done. David had escaped And you have to put yourself in his shoes. In his mind, he thinks, probably rightly so, that anybody that he sees in Israel could be potentially a killer of him. He cannot trust anybody because he doesn't know who the king has talked to or what the king has plotted or what the king has planned. And in his mind, where's he going to go? He cannot go home. His father and his brothers were surely living in Bethlehem still, but for him to go to that place was to bring great danger to that place. Do you see? Even if the people were faithful to him, Saul was seeking his life, and who knew who Saul would kill if they came and found David? He did not know what to do. And I think in praying, he was attracted to another man of faith in the land that he knew from afar. Met him one time, and that's Samuel. David travels up to Ramah, which was probably about a 20-mile journey by road. Took him a while to get there. He goes to the city of the great man of faith. He goes to the city of the man 
who had anointed Saul and then pronounced judgment upon Saul, who had anointed David and who had comforted David that in God's time he would rise to the throne of Israel. And I find it amazing that when David shared with him all that Saul was doing, Samuel not only received him, but Samuel said, David, let's go to this other little city. It was called Naoth. It was just a little bit, uh, maybe a few miles away from Ramah. And let's hide there and let's live together there. Samuel and David, for a season, actually lived together. And to me, this is a very, very significant thing because I see that at this time, this sage man of faith, which, by which I mean Samuel, invested himself in this other man of faith, but who was young and who was in a very difficult situation and who really needed mentoring. And I think that at that time, they sought the Lord together and they praised the Lord together. They glorified the Lord together. I think that at that time, Samuel taught him more about the words of God and that they delighted in the words of God together. How do you think David ended up writing Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 where he's talking about treasuring the word of God more than gold and honey? I think in part he learned it from Samuel. I really do. You have an old man who's lived all of his life by faith, investing his faith into this young man. And surely they also prayed about Saul and they talked about Saul and they wondered to do a, what, what to do about Saul together. Well, unfortunately, at some point, Saul found out where David had fled and he was dead set to kill him. That was all there was to it. He was gonna get this guy for no good reason at all. So he sends a squad to capture and kill. But it's amazing as these guys approached the city of Naoth where Samuel and David were, there were prophets prophesying, giving glory to God, and Samuel was standing at the head over them all. It was basically a worship service where they were giving worship to God and speaking the words of God to each other. And this death squad was overcome by the Spirit of God and they began to prophesy about God. It doesn't say what they prophesied, but I'll tell you how I'm understanding this. The way I understand this is that even the evil spirits of this world can simply cannot overcome God's purposes and plans and promises. They cannot. And sometimes God will even cause demons to speak the truth about Jesus Christ, to speak the truth about the purposes and plans and promises of God. Isn't that true? There are times when the Lord himself commanded the demons, you keep your mouth silent now because the time has yet to come. The demons were trembling and required to speak truth. That's what I see happening here. I don't think conversion is happening here. I think that a clear sign that evil will not overcome good is happening here. Saul's frustrated though. He doesn't want his killers to turn into prophets. He wants them to kill. So he sends another team. The same thing happens. He sends a third team. The same thing happens. You'd think that by the time this reaches the third degree, that Saul would soften his heart and get the point. Wouldn't you at least hope that? Wouldn't you at least hope that Saul would say, despite my fleshly plans, the plans of God are greater and stronger, and I should humble myself and see that the Lord's ways are perfect and that he's going to fulfill every promise he's ever made and every purpose he's ever purposed? But Saul's a man of the flesh and he is hard-hearted and he's bent on death. And so he decides to go himself. And as he's approaching the city, before he actually even knows where it is, he asks for directions. And it amazes me that in his case, even while he's traveling to the city, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he begins to prophesy. He begins to speak of God. 
He begins to declare truth even though he's filled with lies, even though he's filled with an evil spirit. God is forcing him to speak what is true. By the time he comes to the city of Naoth, he's in some kind of prophetic trance. And the Bible says that he strips off his clothes and is naked. The Hebrew there actually, though, is referring to outer clothing, not inner clothing. So basically, see him like in underwear. And he's basically out of it in a kind of trance all day long and that whole entire night long. And he ends up just going back home after that. And, and, and this is so shocking to everybody that they start saying, is Saul one of the prophets or who, who is this guy? But what very few people understand is that what's happening is God himself is protecting a man of faith and keeping him away from the plots of the man of the flesh. That's what's really happening. God is saying, I have purposes and nobody will stop me. God is saying, I don't care how powerful the king is, I am the king over all the kings and I will have my way. And so it is that plot number seven failed and the man of faith prevailed. Now, given, even uh, though that was true, beloved, David was starting to get worn out and he was starting to get very discouraged. By faith, he had just overcome seven plots against his life, some of which he knew about, others of which he actually did not know about. But going through all of that was beginning to take a toll on his soul. And isn't it just true that even when you're living by faith, sometimes you just get weary in the fight of faith? Isn't that true? David was getting very, very weary. Please look with me at chapter 20, verse one. He says to Jonathan, He says, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? You see, he, after this whole debacle, he was up there with Samuel and he realized that he had to flee even from Samuel because he wasn't safe there. And so he leaves Ramah and he begins to wonder, where in the world am I gonna go? Again, I'm a man without a home. I'm a man without resources. I'm a man without friends. I'm a man without any, anywhere to go, so what shall I do? And he decides to do a very courageous thing. And he goes back right into the belly of the beast. He goes right to the town where Saul and Jonathan live and he seeks out his good friend of faith, Jonathan. And beloved, believe me, he's taking his life into his hands. And when he finds Jonathan, he says these words with a very weary soul, what have I done? Why is your father making mincemeat of my life? Jonathan had a hard time believing it because he simply said, listen, my father, the king, doesn't do anything without telling me and he hasn't told me about this. So how could these things be? And David just looked at him and said, my dear friend, you have to believe me. You just have to believe me. As the Lord lives and as you live, Jonathan, there is a single step between me and death, and it's because of your father. Everywhere I go, everywhere I turn, I am waiting to be killed by your father or by your father's men. Please, Jonathan, believe me, this is true. And Jonathan, the man of faith, was persuaded by David, his dear, dear friend in the faith, and he asked what in the world they should do. And so David came up with this idea. He said, listen, there's a feast that I'm supposed to be at. Even all this craziness, I'm supposed to be at that feast. So you go to the feast. I am not gonna go to the feast. In a day or two, your father's gonna ask why I'm not there. And when he does, you tell him that you gave me permission to go and see my family. If your father's okay with that, we will know that the plot is over and your father is no longer seeking my life. But if your father gets very angry, then we're gonna know that he's out to kill me and you're gonna know that what I'm telling you is true. Jonathan totally agrees to that and they work out some details of communication. 
But before they do that, I think the most important thing in this part of the story, it comes in chapter 20, verse 14. So please look with me there. And again, if you're a note taker, if you write in your Bible, you should really mark that verse. Chapter 20, verse 14. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, then David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Beloved, Jonathan was saying, he was acknowledging that he was about to risk his life. To go and confront the king about David was to call the king into question and was to risk his very life. And so Jonathan is saying, if I survive this, David, then please, here's all I ask of you. God has been tremendously faithful to you. He has kept all of his promises to you. This is his steadfast love. This is his love that makes a promise and keeps it all the way to the end. All I ask of you is that if I survive this, please let that steadfast love overflow to me. Do not kill me. Do not cut off my family. Let there be peace between us because I'm a man of faith. You're a man of faith. Let's, let's unite our hearts together under the steadfast love of God. That's what Jonathan is up to. That's what he's asking. And David was very eager to do that because he loved Jonathan even as Jonathan loved him. Jonathan was attracted to David by faith, but David was attracted to Jonathan by faith too. And when I say attracted, I don't have any kind of physical thing in mind here. I'm talking about a spiritual attraction that really deeply connected these brothers. And so David gladly refreshed the covenant that he and Jonathan had already made with each other, and each of them went their own way. We don't have the time to go into the details of chapter 20, but I do encourage you to read them on your own at some point. But suffice it to say that Jonathan went back to that feast, and he, Saul did eventually ask where David was. Jonathan told him the story that David had gone to be with his family, and Saul became so enraged not only with David, but also with Jonathan, that he took his spear and right in front of everybody tried to kill his own son at the king's table. He heaved his spear to kill his own flesh and blood out of jealousy for David, out of spite for David, out of the knowledge that Jonathan had made a connection with David. And the text simply tells us that after he had failed to kill Jonathan, Jonathan got up from the table in anger righteous anger at his father and went out to seek David because now Jonathan knew for sure the heart of his father. The man of flesh was out to kill the man of faith. There was no two ways about it. So Jonathan seeks out David, tells him the news. David bows down before him three times, which is the ultimate way of honoring a person in that culture. Then he gets up, they weep together, they show appropriate affection together. Surely they pray together, they sing together, they strengthen each other in the Lord. And when the time is right, Jonathan says to David, my friend, go in peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom means to go in the wholeness of God, go with the blessing of God. Go with the care of God. Go with the protection of God. Go underneath the banner of the promises of God. Know that all God is, God is for you. Go in the shalom of God, my friend. And he says, because we have both promised each other the steadfast love of the Lord. So go in peace and let's trust the Lord. David had to go his way. Jonathan went back into the city. And next week we'll pick the story up right there. But I want to say for now that they went their own ways in faith. And we're going to see how how that turns out in the coming weeks. For now, 
I want to take just a couple more minutes and meditate on the meaning of the story for our lives. And, and, and there's so much to say about this, but I just mainly, what's on my heart for this morning is to focus on this point. Those who live by faith must learn to persevere by faith. Those who live by faith are going to be attacked. They're going to be opposed. Sometimes people, literally, in parts of the world, they'll be out to kill us, literally. Sometimes other people will just want to shut us down or marginalize us or do whatever it is that they have to do. People who are living by flesh have a a natural hatred, whatever level of hatred it is, toward people of faith. It's just the way it is. It's the flesh reacting to flesh that's been overcome by the grace of God in Christ. And beloved, we just have to get this straight in our minds. In order to walk with God, we're going to have to persevere in faith. We're going to have to press through trial after trial after trial after trial. Our enemy is going to plot against us and he's not going to stop. I wish I could tell you that these seven plots were the end of Saul's plots, but not even close. Not even close. Most of the rest of 1 Samuel is the story of Saul pursuing David and David learning what it means to live by faith. And so for now, I just want to say that we have to learn to fight the fight of faith if we're gonna live by faith. It's just a reality. There are so many reasons, beloved, why this call is actually a gift from God to us. I don't know about you, but the call to persevere does not often feel like a gift in the heat of the moment. Does it feel like a gift to you? Sometimes it feels like, Lord, are you serious? Another round? I can't do this. It's a gift. We don't have time to go into that. I hope that sometime in 1 Samuel, I'll be able to take some time and talk at length about why this is actually a gift to us. But for now, I think there's a more important point. And I I just wanna say this. More important than understanding why we have to persevere is simply resting in the reality and accepting the reality that we have to persevere. More important than understanding why is just looking to our Father and saying, this is how you've designed it, and I'm gonna choose to be okay with that. You see, the person of the flesh says to God, I must understand or I will not believe. The person of faith says, oh Father, help me to believe so that I can come to understand. Help me to surrender my life to you so that I can understand your will and your ways. But Lord, even when everything's foggy to me, I will put my trust in you. I will put my hope in you. I will believe that you are for me and not against me. And I will believe that in keeping my eyes blind to the purposes you have, you're actually working for me in that too and not against me. The most important mentor in my life has been a man named Doug Goodno, and he told me many, many years ago, he said, you can trust the heart of God when you cannot trace his hand. You can trust the heart of God when you cannot trace his hand. And so I mainly want to say today, we have to persevere in faith if we're going to walk by faith. And one of the most important lessons we can learn as children of God is just to accept that fact. The race that's been put before us is long and hard, and that's a gift to us. But for now, I think we just have to accept it. Now, even though that's true, I do want to say that in calling us to persevere, the Lord does not leave us alone. He really does not leave us alone. For David, no matter how bleak his life was at this point of his life, I hope you can see that he was living underneath the power of a very strong promise that was going to come to pass. He had been promised that by the grace and power of God, he was going to rise to the king the throne of Israel. And this is a little kid 
working with sheep out in a field, right? Promised that he's gonna become the king. And he was given a sign of that promise with the anointing oil that was put all over him at the command of God and by the hand of Samuel. And beloved, no matter what the difficulties of his life, the promise remained. In the midst of the darkest, bleakest, hardest moments, the promise screamed to David that God will fulfill his promises. God will be steadfast in his love. And I really encourage you to take time to meditate on chapters 18 and 19 because I promise you that in the midst of all that trial, David had moments where he did not feel that this was true. But it was true. And the power of God's promise was going to overcome the plots of the flesh. This was not primarily the story of a man overcoming another man. It's the story of God's promises being undaunted and unstoppable. That's what it was really about. Beloved, in time, most of us here know the end of the story. David did rise to power. He did come to the throne. God fulfilled all of his promises. God got him through all of these trials. And he did things with David's life that are almost unimaginable. And I'm not exaggerating. What I mean is that God would one day use this man to rise up and not only be the king over a people, but he would use him to write psalm after psalm after psalm with that lyre of his that he was so good at playing. And most of his psalms point to Jesus Christ. I would dare say that there's no Old Testament prophet that more specifically and more regularly pointed to Jesus Christ than King David. He was going to become the primary prophetic voice that pointed to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And not only were his words to point to Jesus, but his very life as the praising king of the tribe of Judah was to point to Jesus. Oh, beloved, God was so gracious to David. He had to suffer for a small time. But I promise you that right now, as David looks back on that time of suffering, it seems like nothing to him. Because he saw that God was good. He saw that God would fulfill his promises no matter what. There's the big lesson for us right there. We have to persevere by faith, but beloved, you and I too, we live under the power of great and precious and irreversible promises. That is just true. Some days I wake up feeling the power of those promises, and some days I wake up feeling a million miles away from the power of those promises, but never mind my feelings. The promises of God are real and true, and he will do everything he's promised that he will do. He said that not only will he save everybody who looks to Jesus and so that they will not perish but have everlasting life, he has said, promised us that he himself will finish the work he began inside of us. He has promised that the faith that he planted in us, he would perfect inside of us. He has promised that someday he'll bring us through every trial and he'll bring us home and we will see our Savior face to face where we will be with him in joy forever and ever. And in that moment, he has promised that all of our trials, all of our difficulties, all of our weaknesses, all of our struggles, all of it will just seem like a light and momentary affliction. Dust in the wind. Nothing compared to the glory that's been stored up for us. Beloved, this is a promise of God, and it's meant to satisfy the weary soul. And so I'm here to say to you today, especially if you're weary because you're living by faith, oh, beloved, keep pressing on in faith because your God is faithful. Amen? You live by the power of a promise that cannot be overturned and will certainly be fulfilled. Oh, and in that day when you see the fullness of the promises, you will praise God even for the trials. 
You will praise God that he perfected and proved your faith to the glory of his name. You will not accuse him. You will praise him. So today, may God just give us a little glimpse, a little taste of what's coming. The Father has promised Jesus Christ the Son. He said, Son, sit right here at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. Then he made us a stunning promise in Romans 16, 20. He said, soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Why? Because we're in Christ, beloved. And one day we will stand on the head of the one who has been trying to kill faith. Not because we're something great, but because when somebody truly trusts in the faithfulness of God, their lives cannot ultimately be overcome. In this world, we're gonna have trouble. But the way we overcome is by attaching ourselves to him who has overcome. And oh, that God would give us ears to hear today that his promises are certain over our lives. Let's pray now and ask that he would help us to believe. Oh, Father, most on my heart today are those people who are living by faith and who are struggling because one plot after another, it just seems never to end, Father. And their souls are weary. They're shaking, Lord. Maybe even they have great faith. Maybe even they've seen you do amazing things. Maybe they've even watched you use them to slay a Goliath, but oh Lord, their knees are buckling. Their hands are weakening, Lord. They're just growing tired. Please, God, use the power of your word and the presence of the Holy Spirit to lift them up, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to know that you will do everything that you have promised that you will do. And my Father, I give you thanks because I know that you will use your word in this way. And I know that one day we'll look back and say, see what the Lord did. See how the Lord used his word in a moment of worship to strengthen me and teach me to press on. So Father, by faith, we give you thanks for what you'll do. And Father, by faith, we rise now to sing to you who is so great and gracious. Amen.